Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. The pomp and ceremony of Queen Elizabeth II's coronation was intentionally snubbed here in Ireland in the wake of independence. But fast forward to 2011 when the Queen made a state visit with her husband Prince Philip at the invitation of the then President Mary McAleese and the public welcome was far warmer, probably because of this. So, like them or loathe them, the royal family have become a permanent fixture of fascination here as we devour the good, the bad and the downright deplorable in a constant newsfeed of royal antics. But just why do we care so much? Well, with Spencer the movie in our cinemas at the moment, there's no better time to discuss. There's no hope for me. Not with them. Fight them. You are your own weapon. I'm Siobhan Maguire and today on the Indo-Daily I'm joined by Irish independent columnists Ian O'Darty and Sinead Ryan to get to the bottom of this curious crush. The royal family need to keep a veil of secrecy across what they do most of the time to avoid themselves tipping into a celebrity soap opera. Ian O'Darty, columnist for the Irish Independent, you are fascinated by the fascination with the royal family. Explain, please. Well, they're a fascinating cultural institution um, in the sense that quite a few of them probably should be in an institution somewhere, as we've as we've seen uh, down the years. And while I'm not a royalist, I'm not a I'm not a Republican. Um, what I am is that I'm a keen student of human folly and hubris and silliness and the Windsors. Just give that to us in spades. And but what I find really interesting from an Irish perspective is how when the Queen came over to visit a few years ago, that was a massive sea change in the Irish attitude uh, towards the royal family. And that it sort of it gave people permission, if you like, to say that they actually quite liked the Queen. Whereas for a lot of people up until then, 
Um, if unless they were basically saying that they loved Diana because everybody loved Diana, um, apart from myself. Um, they were all sort of, you'd be seen as being a West Brit or whatever like that. Um, whereas the, the royals are both the most irrelevant, pointless and expensive family in the world and yet one of the most fascinating. And you mentioned there the, the Queen's visit in 2011, um, Ian, and um, she did herself quite a few favours because she acted um, or seemed like she genuinely was pretty happy to be here. We got we got the, the few Irish words out of her, Uchtaron, Agazakarja. You know, she made reference to the point of uh, being able to bow to the past, but not being bound by it. She said all the right things, didn't well, I was just I was just raging that she's the first foreign dig- dignitary to come over here. I've seen that um, who wasn't dragged down to Gaffney's to be photographed having a pint of Guinness because that was actually the image that I was really hoping for. It was like you know the the, the cliche stereotype thing of anybody any American president who comes to Ireland is like down to Gaffney's pint of Guinness. Um, I think actually she really really surprised and impressed an awful lot of people um, with her quiet grace, her dignity. Um, I mean, don't forget about Mountbatten and stuff like that. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of blood spilled on her side of the family, you know. And but I remember what really explained to me the difference, or displayed to me the difference, was that Prince Charles came over in the '90s, and I was a colour reporter for the Herald and the Indo at that stage. So I drew the short straw, and I had to follow Charles around for a couple of days, and grand lad you know um, but the hatred the hatred everywhere he went it was the Sinn Féin were organising because he was the titular head of the parachute regiment so it was all the bloody Sunday stuff all that kind of thing coming up and it was really visceral and quite violent on on a couple of occasions that all seems to have gone since the Queen's visit Um, and I think it's a case of as they become more dysfunctional and ridiculous, we become maybe a little bit more mature. But around the time of Diana's wedding, probably the biggest show on TV was Dallas. And it was all about glitz and glamour and opulence. And then we had Dynasty, which was another huge... I mean, outside of America, Ireland had the highest ratings for these programmes. Um, we like a bit of glamour. We like a bit... Of, because, let's put it this way, I mean, this is not a country that has ever been renowned for its opulence and for its glamour and stuff like that. So it was a case of just actually looking at them and just seeing what was happening. And I think as well is that the whole Diana thing really opened up the the inner dysfunction then about the royal family. And that bizarrely, as much as she sort of made as great an effort as she could to destroy the institution, she, she humanised them. And there's a narrative track that goes from Diana all the way through to Meghan. Um, but not for the reasons that Meghan would necessarily want and not for the similarities that she so desperately craves. Um, but I do think that the the reason why there's a greater interest in the royal family in Ireland now than there used to be is that I think it's because we don't care as much. We can actually see them as, I mean, as I've said before, is like, I mean, for me, the royal family, it's, it's a mixture of the, the longest running reality show in the world and a real-life version of EastEnders. You know, instead of the Queen Vic, you have the Queen Liz, and she's the matriarch. And you have this family of um, 
utterly dysfunctional agents um, who are running around <laughs> and getting themselves into all sorts of trouble. And I like the fact that, like most Irish people, I come from an extremely dysfunctional family. And But yet I look at the royals and I go, well, they might have all the money in the world, but they're even more messed up than my ma was um, or my brother or me or whatever. And so bizarrely, the more lunatic they've become over the last few years, or the, actually, I don't think they've become any more lunatic. I think basically the media has just got better at letting the stories come out because they've always been, you know, a, a strange bunch. But the, but that's humanised them. You mentioned the the kind of the the Diana and how she brought a more kind of softer, human, emotional aspect. But it kind of all went horribly wrong for the royal family from there, really, because the more attached we became to Diana, the less. Uh, favourable, we would look at the rest of them. Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Well, probably the best piece of diplomacy that Tony Blair ever conducted wasn't any of his foreign diplomatic misadventures. Um, let's not even go into Iraq. Um, uh, the best piece of diplomacy he had was actually explaining to the Queen, look, you need to get out there and you need to talk to your subjects. Her mantra is never complain, never explain, right? And in the last year, you've had Prince Harry going on and complaining on Oprah. And you had Andrew explaining on the Panorama interview. And both of those things were absolute disasters. I, I have a peculiar medical condition, which is that I don't sweat, um, or I didn't sweat at the time, because I... Um, ha had suffered what I would describe as an overdose of adrenaline in the Falklands War when I was shot at. It, it was almost impossible for me to, to, to sweat. So this would bring me back to why the Queen is, as a matriarch, she's like the Peggy Mitchell um, of the royal family. Her thing of never complain, never explain. Somebody should have beaten that into Harry and somebody should have beaten that into Andrew because they broke those two rules and now both men are probably potentially on the verge of ruining the monarchy. So the Queen is reigning the men, if you'll pardon the pun. I'm not sure she can, to be honest with you. You know, um, the outrage that Philip used to generate, um, I always thought that outrage was as insincere as you could possibly get. It was just an excuse to just have a pop. And in the same way that he didn't mean any of those insults, he was just having a laugh. And he, he used to do them in front of journalists from the British press pack just to annoy them and just to give them something to write about. So he'd pretend to say something, blah, 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 and they'd pretend to be outraged, blah, 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 and everybody had a good day. Sinead Ryan, what makes the royals stand out for us? Uh, well, it's an interesting question. I, I think possibly it is that celebrity culture. So the royals are a little bit like celebrities on speed and uh, and they were celebrities before they ever existed uh, in other spheres of life. So I think there has been a very, very long lasting, and I'm talking over centuries, fascination uh, with royalty, with monarchy and with the royal family. 
And bear in mind that for many hundreds of years, um, royalty and the monarch in particular had a very powerful function. I mean, we see them now just as figureheads, ribbon cutters, you know, gracing the pages of Hello Magazine. But, but really, for very, very many centuries, they were almost a dictator-like uh, power. Uh, and and certainly, while that has changed, the interest and fascination with them uh, hasn't gone away. It's it, it's it's almost uh, enhanced as well now, Sinead, with the likes of say the Crown, which has kind of you know swept the globe and kind of reinvigorated uh, an interest in the royals. Whether you like them or not, it's a very good show. It is, and there have always been films made about monarchy and about um, whether they're fiction or non-fiction. There are hundreds and hundreds of films. Uh, the Crown, I think, just had a, a particular set of production values. And of course, let's not forget an enormous amount of money behind it that could get it out to a global audience. Uh, so I think possibly the, the Crown's biggest effect is the sheer number of people who had no interest in it before who are now taking an interest in it. Uh, fictionalised as it is, uh, but there is that sense that part of it is true and therefore you're left working out a little bit about what's true and what's not true. Because, of course, we don't know behind the scenes what dialogue uh, took place or how these characters spoke to each other. Uh, but that aside, it has certainly given a sense of the majesty, if you like, and, and the performance that these unfortunate people, some would say, have to endure. And then in The Crown, you have like these amazing scenes that kind of tug at the heartstrings. I'm, I'm thinking off the top of my head, Sinead, of where um, the, the Queen's uh, grandmother has written her this very powerful letter about her taking on the role of Queen and why she has to do this and how she has to park one Elizabeth for Elizabeth. Elizabeth the Queen. And while you mourn your father, you must also mourn someone else. Elizabeth Mountbatten. For she has now been replaced by another person. Elizabeth Regina. The two Elizabeths will frequently be in conflict with one another. The fact is, the crown must I would imagine that letter actually had to exist as well at some point. Yes, indeed. And of course, a lot of the royal letters uh, still do exist because um, the the royals in past times saw themselves in the same way, say, a president would nowadays as being a very public office and that records ought to be preserved. Uh, Queen Victoria, for instance, uh, was a prolific letter writer, 20, 30 letters a day, and they're all published. Uh, now, some of the... Uh, will I say more intimate ones or very private ones, particularly towards the end of her life when she had a relationship with John Brown, her gilly. We don't know whether that was platonic or otherwise, I'm sure it was. Uh, some of those were burnt by her children after she died. But her more formal correspondence exists and, and I've read it and it is a fascinating insight into the history of the time and her thought process uh, and what was happening. And remember, that was during the Irish famine. Uh, she was the long, then the longest serving monarch on a throne anywhere in the world. Uh, and it's a political and historical record, uh, which is really, really interesting. 
interesting to look at, as indeed were the letters of her uh, and her predecessor, her ancestors. So Edward VIII, for instance, who famously abdicated before he was crowned. There are there's a phenomenal trove of his letters, and also George VI, his brother, who then became king, the current queen's father. Uh, so his as a as a record and as a sense of their thoughts, uh, I think it's invaluable. And in terms of the royals, Sinead, there, there is that sense of, of, of voyeurism, that, that kind of um, standing outside, looking in that quite a lot of us enjoy. And, uh, you know, you can't you can't get much more um, uh, popcorn eating enhanced television as that Oprah interview between Harry and Meghan. He won't be given security. He's not going to be given a title. And also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. What? There are several conversations. There's a about conversation it. with you? With Harry. About how dark your baby is going to be? I think this is probably where you see the tipping point. That has never happened before, uh, where you see that tipping point between monarchy and celebrity. And even though there have been documentaries made and films made, they have always been done in a very reserved and controlled manner. Uh, Harry and Meghan's interview differed in that respect because it was just a, a vomit onto, onto a recording. I mean, Harry at all is pent up, whatever, <laughs> anger yeah. and frustration going on he needed to dump. I, I don't blame Meghan for it, funnily enough, nearly as much as I do for Harry because for Meghan, I believe she believes that the that the royal family is simply celebrity to the power of 10 uh, she she wouldn't and couldn't possibly have the sense of history and ownership and gravitas that the Brits reserve for their monarchy. Um, so as a result, it really was up to Harry to educate her and, and train her in that regard. And uh, instead they went kind of off piste as it were. Uh, I wonder though, it is interesting that since then, there seems to have been a pull away from Harry and Meghan, uh, from the people that otherwise would have supported the monarchy. And there seems to be a sense of this far and no further. Uh, we're gawping at it and we're fascinated by it. But honest goodness, this is not what we want from a royal family. And, and that might be where a lot of British people uh, and indeed Commonwealth people remember the Queen as Commonwealth uh, head of 53 nations uh, in name, at least, uh, that there, there has been a slight distaste uh, around that public uh, sense of, of tell us all. In fact, I think, Siobhan, the, the sense of it is that people don't want to know it all. Um, I mean, Queen, the Queen Mother, the Queen's mother, uh, said once that we have to be seen to be believed. But there's also that sense of never explain, never complain. So if, if they are behind this veil, there, there remains an interest and a fascination. Too much out on the page, really, I, I'm not sure they're any better than the Kardashians. And Sinead, in recent years, the, the royals have um, tried their hand at, at a, a softer approach of, of giving us a little bit more of a, of a humanised version of themselves. You know, we would have had, uh, we, I found this uh, clip of Prince Charles um, on BBC Scotland reading the weather and being quite funny about it. West, rain will be lighter and patchier. There were maybe a few drier interludes over Dumfries House in Ayrshire. Aha. There'll be snow for the higher ground of the Highlands and Aberdeenshire. 
The potential for a few flurries over Balmoral. Who the hell wrote this script? <laughs> but there's there's still that question of whether they, they are now the brunt of the joke. And we can look at, at the Emmys and, um, you know, the reference to, to Harry and Meghan um, as a joke. And it got big laughs and all of that. That Oprah interview with Prince Harry and Meghan. Ooh, that was the real tea right there, wasn't it? Megan must put it on that boy because he renounced his throne quicker than Eddie Murphy did in coming to America. I said, man. Can they really um, come out of all these scandals unscathed? Well, I think some of them can. And, and I think this is crucial because Charles has made absolutely no secret of the fact that when he ascends to the throne, uh, that he is going to slim down the monarchy really pretty much in a very drastic way. So that means his brothers and his sister will find their roles pretty much chopped, left to ribbon cutting. Um, he's already indicated, and this is partly what, um, you know, enraged Harry and Meghan. He, he's decided that his second son won't enjoy, you know, all of the privileges and all of the, the jobs and the, the regalia that goes with that. And in fact, the royal family in the future is now going to be the monarch and the direct heir to the throne and his or her family. Now, what's interesting here is that that is the way it is done in the other um, European monarchies. Uh, for instance, you know, you have monarch, monarchies in, in Denmark, in Sweden and in Holland. These would be considered the foremost egalitarian democracies that we all strive to be. And yet they have a perfectly functioning um, and much loved monarchy, but it is extremely small. It's immediate family. And therefore, the public don't feel that sense of I'm spending millions you know, of taxpayer money to prop these people up in fancy palaces so they can do what they like. Instead, there's a relatability. And that's what we're going to see in the future. So you see the Danish royals, uh, you know, going round uh, on their bikes. Uh, the Dutch children go to normal schools, that kind of thing. Uh, the Swedish um, heir to the throne, Victoria, Prince Victoria. She has, you know, done her national service in the army. Uh, so I think you'll see a lot of that kind of coming on. And William, uh, Catherine and their children just being seen to be doing normal things that normal families do. And, and that will certainly go some way towards readjusting uh, where that family goes in the future. That was Sinead Ryan, who was joined by Ian O'Doherty, both of whom are columnists in the Irish Independent. Today's episode of the Indo Daily was presented and produced by Siobhan Maguire, researched by Tabitha Monaghan with sound by Gavin Hennessy. Archive clips with thanks to independent.ie, the BBC and Netflix. 